Father, thank You for our time tonight. And thank You for Your patience and grace in working with the fallen human race and calling us out one by one to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that You would uh, open our hearts tonight to this great truth of the Exodus and Your mighty work in history in that era. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to get into the Exodus proper. Um, we have pretty well finished the call of Abraham, although I'm going to spend some time in Genesis tonight as we finish as a prelude to Exodus's situation. Uh, once again, I remind you that reading the Old Testament is a very necessary exercise if your diet has been exclusively New Testament. Because the New Testament presupposes that you've read the Old Testament. The, the addressees of the New Testament when it was written, when it was preached, were all basically Jewish who knew their Old Testament very well. So the New Testament writers assume that you know things about the Old Testament. And I always, as when I was a new Christian, I always felt kind of stupid when I would look in the margins and it say, refer to such and such and second kings. And I barely knew there was a second kings. So, that got me to thinking about this Old Testament. And so I've spent many years in working with the Old Testament. In fact, when I went to graduate school, I majored in a lot of Old Testament studies just to overcome my own weakness because I had no, no preparation, no background in it. So as we go into the Exodus, we're going to encounter a similar thing that we've encountered before back here with the creation, fall, flood, and covenant. While we were dealing with those events last year, you remember... We said, if the scriptures are the scripture, then they are the authoritative interpretation of history. Therefore, all the data has to fit the scripture, not the other way around. And what we said, oftentimes, even evangelical people do this, they'll go follow a study like biology or geology or astrophysics or something like that. They'll accept the whole framework as factual, and then what they try to do is fit the scripture into that. Then they wonder why there's a problem. And what we've learned, I hope, in church history is that every time we do that, we wind up shooting ourselves in the foot. What we have to do is start off and interpret all the data, the so-called secular data as well as the sacred data, in the light of scripture. So we said last, uh, last year when we were working with these, we basically are, are very offensive if we are Bible-believing Christians, we are very offensive to conscientious biologists, physicists, and so forth. Look upon us as sort of radicals because we really disbelieve their whole structure. And that same problem is going to happen here. Um, we're going to get into that probably next time and the time after. Uh, there's a mention in the notes handing out tonight um, that the Exodus event can't be found in secular history the way secular history is. If the Exodus happened, it happened inside of a closet somewhere. Uh, but we're going to show you that if you reanalyze the data, you'll quickly see, yes, the Exodus did happen, and yes, the Egyptians remembered it, and yes, there were reports of the plagues written by down by Egyptians. But the way secular history is constructed, that is masked. So we'll have to get into that. But I just kind of warn you about... I said when we started this whole five-year tour uh, that you would see the same thing over and over and over again. And once you master the way of thinking, you'll see that this recurs again and again and again, whether you're in Genesis, whether you're in Exodus, whether you're dealing with the resurrection of Christ. It's always the same story. It's always the fact that the secular person or the pagan thinker has put all his marbles in a pattern and then tried to fit the Bible into the pattern and said, ooh, the Bible doesn't fit, so the Bible's wrong. What we come along is we tip the whole board of marbles over and start all over. And that obviously is radical. So, so the same thing happens here in the Exodus. Now, the, in the notes tonight uh, that we handed out last time, we have basically two things to cover. One was that going into the Exodus event, Going into this time period, we have a problem with Abraham and his family, and we have to look at Egyptian culture. 
Let me give you a little outline of the way the secular person looks at ancient history a moment. Remember, why are we bothering with all this about history and what happened in history? Because we said that the Bible is a witness in the court. Whenever you have a contract, it's a legal document. And a contract specifies behavior. If you have a contract with the automobile dealer, you don't expect to buy a lemon. And he is held to certain um, things in the contract. And when you buy a house, you don't expect to have the roof fall in the next week. And so contracts are important. They specify behavior. Now, the Old Testament, through Abraham, is a contract. And God has his behavior pattern specified in that contract. So if he doesn't behave the way the contract says, then he's not a faithful God. How do you measure God's faithfulness? You've got to have a yardstick. And that's what the Bible is in its covenant structure. So that's why, from our point of view, we have Abraham, and we have this Abrahamic covenant. Let's see, I've got to get the thing down here a little bit. We have this Abrahamic covenant promising a seed, a land, and a worldwide blessing. And it's promised to, this land is promised to this seed. Now, the, the issue, the issue now is going to be, does the land, what, does this land get into the hands of the seed? And who are the seed? So, we said very carefully, you have to watch the terms of the contract. The Abrahamic contract has two levels to it. It has, in the Old Testament, the seed is Israel. But, and the land is the land of Canaan. That much is very clear. However, the Abrahamic covenant makes an eternal promise. And that is that the seed of Abraham will dwell in the land forever. Now, the last book of the Bible, when the new heavens and new earth are constructed, they're constructed around Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the land. So, this land promise goes into eternity. And therefore, this land promise, while it's true in the Old Testament, it becomes eternally secure and true forever and ever in the book of Revelation. The seed is Israel and then, obviously, throughout Israel's history, she gets kicked out of the land and then there's a return and then there's Christ and you, the, the question is, who constitutes the seed? And Paul specifies in Romans that the seed are the regenerate people who are miraculously born through Abraham some way. For example, starts off with Abraham's first son, Isaac. Now, that's his first son, but he was miraculously born first son. So it's not just the physical seed of Abraham, it's a subset of that. On to the time you get to Jesus Christ. And then, because we are adopted sons into Christ, we share in that seed promise. And that's how Galatians gets it together and so forth. Well, what, what are we aiming at here? What we're saying is that this plan is the plan of God that is sovereignly secure. It's not going to go away. Satan isn't going to be able to stop it. Nothing stops the sovereign plan of God for history. History has his story. So, that means that somewhere, somehow, this seed is going to multiply and go into the land. The exodus is the step through which the seed becomes more than a family. It becomes a family and now a nation. So you go from one individual to a family to a nation. The seed is growing. And the exodus is the report that God is on the move. Exodus says there's a pattern to history. And I'll just make a, a point here. You might want to note this in the notes. 
um, before we get into the details of Abraham's family tonight. Here's a little point for conversation. Trivia, but it's really not trivia. When somebody talks to you about history, why don't you sometime ask them, well, who do you think was the first person who wrote history? Now, in school, you know what the answer is. Uh, you always remember in social studies that they always taught you that the first historian was Herodotus. And you could always remember H and H. H. Herodotus was a historian. Or Thucydides was a historian. And these guys were Greeks in the 4th and 5th century before Christ. And they said, those are the first people to really compile history. Before that, men didn't have, they had tales, they had myths, but they didn't really have history. That's the secular story. But you know that's wrong. And you know why it's wrong? Because the Bible, in Moses' day, set forth the framework for a history. Now, it's true, Moses reported Genesis and so on. But what I mean here is that beginning with the Exodus, we have a national historical experience. We have a certain pattern to this nation. It's outlined in the Abrahamic Covenant. It's going to be amplified in the Mosaic Covenant. And that means that the men who live after Moses now are going to look back to these contractual agreements and measure the performance of an experience of this nation Israel. So therefore, beginning with the next book after the Pentateuch, Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, after the Pentateuch is finished, the very next book is the first history book, the book of Joshua. Why is that? Because Joshua is recording God on the move, and it is an interpretation from God's viewpoint of what is going on with this nation. It is a divine viewpoint of history. And Joshua occurred in... Uh, he, that whole narration is about 1400 B.C. So when did the secular person social studies course tell you was the first historian Herodotus of Thucydides 400 B.C.? No, wrong, by a thousand years. Joshua, the men who put the book of Joshua together, people who lived in the era of the judges, these are prophets unknown to us, but they were nameless prophets in the nation Israel who gathered together these materials and wrote the first history. And it was written in the 13th century B.C. So we're talking about a thousand years before the Greeks. There was a history, and historians were studying this. Now, people don't like to hear about this because they say, well, that's a religious history. And, and they, when they use that word, a religious history, you know, they get this kind of tone to their voice. And what they really mean is it's a crumbing history. It's an unreliable history. It's a history filled with myths. It's not real history. Well, I beg to differ with you. Uh, the reason that it's history and why these men were interested in history was because they were monitoring the performance of God in history. Their historical interests derive from a fundamental belief that by studying history you learned about God. History had meaning, in other words, because God had a plan. Forever, that has been the motive for history. Now today, you hear it all over the place that we're losing our sense of history. The Jews, particularly in our country, are very concerned that here we are, a generation or less than a generation removed from the Holocaust. And we've got kids throughout the school system don't even know that the Holocaust happened. Some are even denying that it ever happened. And the, the last remnants of the people who experienced the Holocaust, they're in their 80s. They're in the nursing homes. They're dying. And when these people are dead in the next 10 years, there will be no eyewitness observers left to the Holocaust. Watch what happens. And the reason for this constant harassment about history today is people are convinced there isn't any meaning to history, so why bother and study it? Doesn't that make sense? I think it does make sense. If you start off with the assumption there is no meaning out there, why get excited? Why not play a video game? But if, in fact, history is his story, we ought to be very concerned with history. It ought to excite us because history is the providential outworking of our Father's plan. 
We ought to be the students of history. We ought to be excited about learning history. So, uh, just a, an aside as we move into the Exodus. Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis because we wanna, we've gone through Abraham's era and we want to quickly show a problem that developed in this family, starting in Genesis 37. From Genesis 37 to 50, we have a narration of the behavior of the first Jewish family. Not very exciting. And it, the, the reason we're looking at this is because this is why there had to be an exodus. You can't have an exodus until you have an entrances. And there had to be an entrance into Egypt to solve a problem that Abraham's family had. Let's think of the generations now. Abraham, his son was Isaac. And his son was Jacob. Anybody know the altar name of Jacob? His other name in the Bible? Israel. When you use the word Israel, are you aware of the fact that you're really talking about a man's name? It would be like saying America is Washington. And, of course, we use the city of Washington. But sometimes we're so familiar with the use of the word Washington, D.C. for city, forget it. It's a man. And so we use the word Israel so often we forget that's a guy. That's Israel, Jacob. And then Jacob had many sons, and these became the tribes. What we're studying now in the role of Genesis, this is Genesis 12 up here. Now tonight, we're looking at what's going on down here. We want to examine what is happening to this family. Keep in mind, Abrahamic covenant says this family has a destiny. And God in his sovereignty will fulfill the destiny of this family. Now, the problem we always wind up with in, in religious circles is we tend to be self-righteous. That why great God does great things with us because we're so great. And he just has to walk along because we are so lily white and we do everything such right way that that's why we're blessed. Now, as we look at the text from Genesis 37, let's see how lily white and how perfect this family was. First, in 37, we have the story of Joseph. Notice verse 2. Teenager, 17 years old. He was working out with his brothers and in 3... Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Now, there's a problem right there with the family. Were those sons all sons of the same woman? No. So right now, we've got, shall we say, what is the politically correct term? Oh, a blended family today. So we have a blended family here. And... That's fine. I mean, obviously, divorce happens and so forth. But what we're saying here is that we live in a fallen universe. That kind of marital problems happen. And what we're seeing is the fallout from it. We have a family that is mixed, different mothers, same father. And in verse 3, we now have the father starting a little problem because he prefers one son over the other. Now, a father may do that, but it's... Uh, very uncomfortable to everybody else in the family. And notice verse 4. Verse 4 reports that the other guys in the family realized that their dad had preferences. Plus the fact he was a little, um, he's the youngest son. Notice in verse 4, wonderful family love and fellowship. They hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So now we have the dysfunctional family operating. And it goes on and describes them, and by the time the, the whole thing's through, the end of, of this chapter, chapter 37 deals with an attempted murder of Joseph. So how's that for a nice, righteous family that just is so good and so perfect that God has to work with them? See, the issue isn't that. The issue is God's plan. It's always what God is going to do, not what we're doing. Now, of course, what we're doing matters, but, but just look at the big picture here. What did God say he was going to do? He's going to do a work in history. And here, here's the material he worked with. 
I think find encouraging, frankly, that he uses this kind of material to work with. That means he can use me. So, watch what happens in this family. Let's go to chapter 38. Another, another installment from the family diary. This one's a real ripper. It came about that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kizib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, perform your duty as a brother-in-law, and raise up offspring. This was a part parcel of the way that families went propagated in the ancient world. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so he wasted his seed in the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And so, notice the wonderful relationship that everybody has here in this spiritual adventure. So it goes on, and finally we come down to a scene where Judah uh, ha has basically lied to Tamar. He has made her a promise, and he violates the promise. And so... She, has a, she, in verse 14, decides to disguise herself, to sit by the road. Now, the Hebrew has a very interesting thing in this passage, and I want you to see a word that is used here. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a kid from the flock. Will you give me a pledge until you send it? What pledge shall I give you? Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. What he is doing here is men in those days had a credit card. And around their neck was this string and it went through this cylinder. That cylinder had their name on it. And when they signed a document, they would be in soft clay and they'd roll that thing through the clay. Then they'd bake the clay and that would be the record. Well, this is what Judah has and, and Tamar's shrewd. He says, give me a credit card. Want a pledge? And this perfectly identifies who he is. And, and she arose and departed, removed her veil, put on her widow's garments. Judah sent the kid by his friend to receive the pledge from the woman's hand. He didn't find her. He asked the men of her place. Where Now look, in verse 21, I'm not sure of your translation. This is a critical little note here. If you have the new ASV, you'll see that they've translated the word for harlot in verse 21 differently than they translated the word in verse 15. I'm not sure whether that's true of the King James. I didn't have a chance to look at it before I got here. But... The word for harlot in verse 15 is harlot. But the word in verse 21 is a technical term that meant a prostitute in the Canaanite religious cults. This was a high-class, professional, religious prostitute. So he thinks that Tamar is one of those. Now, what's so fascinating is, is what did you observe in the early parts of Genesis? When Abraham sought a daughter for his son, where did he go and why? Do you remember the story? He sent out his servant to find a woman for his son, not among the native inhabitants. Now, why did he do that? Separation from the culture. The same thing went on, you remember, in this generation, Isaac and Jacob got a little messy with Jacob, but still the idea was that he went north to get out of this Canaanite culture. Had, you know, girls were nice, but they were all pagan girls. So you don't mess with them. You go back to the Semitic girls. And that's where we want our sons to marry. Well, isn't it remarkable that as you move from this point to this point, to this point, now down to here, look what you're observing. 
You see the degeneration that's happening? Now this is a man who doesn't even care about intermingling, not just with the Canaanites, but with the temple prostitutes of the Canaanite religion. A complete apostasy in his faith. Apart from the moral problem, we have a religious problem here in the text. People always read chapter 38 like it's a moral problem. It has, is a moral problem, but it's deeper than more profound than that. It's a religious problem. He is intermingling with Canaanite religion, which he should have known all along to be separate from this. So, we can go on and describe what happened there. Now, if you look at chapter 39, we immediately start digging up the, the Joseph cycle. From chapter 39 in Genesis, all the way to the end, deals with the drama of Joseph, and this introduces Egypt. And that's why Genesis leads to Exodus. And in this story, who is it that forced the Jews to go to Egypt? Jews. Who sent Joseph down there in the first place? It was these clowns that tried to kill him and screwed up and didn't want to because, by the way, Judah was the one, remember, he was the brother that intervened and said, you're not going to do this to my baby brother? He stepped in because the other guys are ready to kill him. And he stepped in and stopped it. And then they, they passed it off as a fake murder to the, to the dad. Well, Joseph goes down there and the whole, the whole drama is, net, the net result of the drama is that he goes down there, the Lord works him through a prison and resurrects him. And by the way, that's a picture of death and resurrection, in case you didn't notice that theme. Here you have Joseph. He dies, as it were. He goes to prison. But when he gets out of prison, he doesn't come back to the same level he was as a servant. He is elevated to become assistant and vicar to Pharaoh himself. And it's a picture of a man being elevated. Remember we said that justification is a picture that doesn't just forgive the past, but adds positive righteousness? Well, here's, here's another example of this. Another point of history, by the way, that who is the Joseph of history? Is he known in history by another name? And when we get into, if I can get at the end of this, I'll show you some appendix where some guys re think that they have identified Joseph. Only if you realign history. His name was Amenhuhotep, and he was a man who, would, who lived in the time of a great, great famine in Egypt, and he had power equal to the Pharaoh, unknown in all of Egyptian history. So he stands out as a, as a Joseph figure. Okay, so we have this time period here from Genesis 39 to the end of the document, and when the brothers come to Joseph at the end of this, and they're in utter repentance and remorse for what they've done, completely humbled by this whole thing. And we have a famous line at the last chapter of Genesis. So if you turn to Genesis 50, verse 20, here's the theme of the historical analysis of the meaning of the suffering of this family. It's an eloquent portrayal of the power of God, evil, and his sovereign purposes. Genesis 50:20 is for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for my good, for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, Joseph was able to forgive, not because he got gooey feelings for his brothers, but the thing that enabled Joseph to forgive and relax and, get, and not get his soul t torn up with knots over this thing, how he'd been almost killed by his brothers, hated, ridiculed by his brothers. And we could also say, if you read the Joseph narratives carefully, he was kind of a brat in his younger years. But what enabled him to get through that without tying his soul up in knots was the fact that he realized God had accomplished a purpose through that, and he was happy. It made him happy to realize that he was a component of a movement of God in history. So this is an eloquent verse. It's worth memorizing. It's worth writing down in a margin somewhere. Genesis 50, verse 20. 
God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. It's the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Wonderful verse. Okay. So I think we've, we've looked here at, at enough of uh, Abraham. I do want to point out, if you'll turn back to Genesis 12.8 a moment, I want to show you something else that shows the degeneration in this family and a certain movement. I wish this was a study of Genesis, but we have to go on through very fast. In Genesis 12, verse 8, you'll notice a characteristic of the man Abraham. He proceeded from there to the mountain in the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel in the west, Ai in the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Turn to chapter 13, verse 18. Another observation about Abraham. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 21, verse 33. Chapter 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. What is Abraham's characteristic lifestyle? Giving testimony. Giving testimony to God. Okay? How many times do you read of Isaac and Jacob doing that? Once in a while. How many times do you read these guys doing that? Never. God speaks to Abraham face to face. Comes, visits him, you remember, angel. Uh, and uh, they come and they share supper with him. Isaac has vivid dreams. And I think this one of two theophanies. Jacob mostly is dreams. And by the time you get to Joseph, it's all dreams and no theophany. What do you notice is happening? The family is getting more and more corrupt and God is pulling away. There's less and less intimacy with God. So we've got four generations here now. Four generations of a family. Great-grandfather, grandfather, father and son. Four generations. And only in four generations... The first chosen family has got to the point where they are murdering each other, lying to each other, hating each other, and basically blowing it all over the place. Totally dysfunctional family. Now, if God operated on the principle that we do, he would have said, trash them. It's not a start over. But God doesn't do that. God pins himself down. He said, I've chosen to work with this family and now I'm sticking with it. Pretty gross, but I'm sticking with it. So now he brings Abraham's son, the seed, through which the Messiah is going to come, and he takes him to Egypt. Now we want to pass on and look at Egypt. Why Egypt? Why not take them east to the Babylonian plain? Why take them south to Egypt? So we have to ask the question, before we get to the exodus from Egypt, we have to get to why was there an entrance into Egypt? Why this? From which we get, he pulls them out. I mean, if he had to pull them out, why did he send them down there? There's got to be a meaning and a purpose to this. We have a hint in the Abrahamic covenant itself in Genesis 15. When God was talking to them, in Genesis 15, verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, so forth. Then he has this cryptic remark in verse 16. People read quickly and don't pause carefully to observe the text. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites were the Canaanites. They were the people who dwelt in, not Egypt, but in Palestine. And God is saying these people, these Canaanite people are getting more and more and more corrupt. Where was Abraham and his family living? In Canaan. And what was happening to them? They were getting more and more and more corrupt. 
And what God is doing here, he's letting the Amorites get completely corrupt. And what will happen to them, the Amorites and the Canaanites, in one of the most hotly debated passages of Scripture? The thing that offends anybody that has had any kind of awareness of the Old Testament, particularly if they've taken a course in religions or something, the Holy War. You have the extermination of the Canaanites, the Amorites. Not only the men were killed, the women were killed, the babies were killed, the animals were killed. A total extermination of a society. Talk about genocide. This was a divinely ordered genocide that is very highly controversial. How could the God of love order the death of these people? But he says in here, I'm going to, in verse 16, I'm going to let them degenerate. By the fourth generation, they will become so corrupt that they will be ripe for my judgment. And I will remove them from the face of the earth. Well now, what would you suppose would have happened had he left the Jews there? By four generations, it wouldn't be any difference, and there wasn't. What did we see Judah doing? Going in and having sex with a Canaanite prostitute. That was great. So, they have to be extracted from that. So, it says, God is going to, in verse 13, he says, I'm going to take them to another place, a land that is not theirs, which means it's going to be outside of Canaan, outside of this cauldron of corruption, to a land that is not theirs. Now, it's interesting, he describes the Egyptians in verse 13 differently than the Amorites in verse 16. The Amorites are clearly seen to be a real degenerate group that we all know ultimately will be exterminated. But in verse 13, the Egyptians aren't quite described that way. The Egyptians are described as people who will oppress. They will serve, they will... Um, separate themselves. And we haven't got time tonight to go into the passage, but we, even in Joseph's day when he invites his brothers in, um, the Egyptians have the Jews sitting over here and the Egyptians in polite society sit over here. We could describe the following in summary, what happened here. Why did they, he send them in here? He sent them into Egypt to a deliberately segregated society. The Egyptians did not accept Semites. He put them into a segregated environment where they couldn't amalgamate themselves. They couldn't be culturally lost in the Egyptian milieu because the Egyptians wouldn't accept them. The Egyptians would oppress them, but the Egyptians wouldn't accept them. They couldn't be good Egyptians. They would never be acceptable. And the Jew, by the way, has always had that problem. The Jews in France, if you know history and the French history, you've probably heard the Dreyfus case where Captain Dreyfus of the French army tried to amalgamate himself as a Frenchman, tried so desperately, as Jews did in France, to become Frenchmen and forget their Jewishness. And then came the Dreyfus case. And here was the French government picking on this Jewish military person, making a spectacle of him, and that was the rise from that, there was a young reporter in that courtroom that watched the court-martial of Dreyfus. He later became the man who started Zionism. And the Jewish movement for modern Israel got started in a French courtroom because the Jews of Europe realized after that that they couldn't hide themselves. They couldn't be Frenchmen. They couldn't be Germans. They couldn't be Czechoslovaks. They could not amalgamate. Everywhere they went in Europe, they were always despised. They were always separated. Well, it's the same thing here with Egypt. So we want to look a little at the structure of Egyptian society. If you look at your notes on page 44, um, I quote Hosea 11, verse 1. I've got, um, in the ensuing rest of the class, I'm going to pretty well follow the outline of the notes. So, uh, not that we're not interested in this text of Scripture, but I've got to go through this pretty fast. Egypt was chosen by God as the womb. For out of Egypt would God call his son, Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, in that passage in Hosea 11.1, 1, the son is the nation Israel. But what analog in the life of Jesus Christ fulfills this thing? Anybody know? There was a little event, not mentioned usually around Christmas stories, but there is an event in Christ's life most of us remember around Christmas. What did Herod try to do? kill all the babies, right? 
genocide. Where did Joseph and Mary go to get out from Herod? Egypt. And then after that, they came back. And that little sojourn, not noticed too often, is the signal that this baby boy is following the pattern of the great nation Israel. Israel went down to Egypt to what? Escape the evil of the land. And at the proper time, she reemerged and came back into the land. Jesus, as a young boy, a young baby, was taken into the womb of Egypt and protected. And you know, in the books of prophecy of the Bible, though there's great judgments given against Gentile nations, Egypt is always treated differently than the other nations. Always a special thing. Isn't it remarkable in the time of President Carter that the one nation that has made a treaty with Israel is Egypt? No one else. So the pattern continues right before our faces. Egypt is a special nation. She's pagan. She's not Jewish. But somehow, she always has a role in Jewish history. However, in the notes, you'll notice that it says that, um, I'll give you some pet, uh, scriptures, but from its founding by Ham's son, Mitzrayim, until the Exodus a thousand years later, Egypt functioned like a Gentile millennium, featuring the most artistic and highest level of paganism in the world. As the most prominent remnant of the Hamitic Tower Babel scheme, Egypt is referred to throughout the scripture by Satan symbols, Leviathan, Rahab, the dragon. And I give you all those references if you'd like to check them out. Nevertheless, Egypt is never treated in the Bible as fit for total destruction as Canaan and Babylon are, apparently because she never so completely rejected God's revelation as those nations. Now we want to look at the artwork of Egypt. So you have that little, artwork, uh, that little diagram, those four diagrams, and uh, I have some of the, um, some of them here that came out of the book. So we'll if you, Dr. Frankfurt, who I quote on bottom of page 44, I just want you to follow that quote a moment because this this Frankfurt was an Egyptologist at the University of Chicago, University of Chicago and Johns Hopkins probably have the two top departments in Egyptology in the world. The Egyptian belief was that the universe is changeless and that all apparent opposites must therefore hold each other in equilibrium. Such a belief has definite consequences in the field of moral philosophy. It puts a premium on whatever exists with a semblance of permanence. It excludes ideals of progress, utopias of any kind, revolutions, and any other radical changes in existing conditions. Take your pencil or pen and underline that little phrase. It excludes revolutions and other radical changes in existing conditions. It is an axiom of ancient Egyptian thought. What do you think the Exodus was? In this way, the belief in a static universe enhances, for instance, the significance of established authority. Again, underline, established authority. Who was it that Moses had to deal with again and again? Remember Cecil DeMille's Moses? And I think if I ever meet a pharaoh or if he's a Christian and meet him in heaven, I'm going to be disappointed. He doesn't look like the old brunner. But he played an excellent pharaoh. All right, the Egyptian art forms now. We want to look at some of the Egyptian art forms because we want to watch this theme. So if you'll look at the um, first one I'm going to show you, we didn't, I didn't get in the book. A little comment about Egyptian art. For a long time I thought, gee, these Egyptian artists are kind of stupid. Um, you have to interpret this with a certain kind of uh, understanding. And the nearest thing that I can count in our everyday experience to this kind of art is if you look on the editorial page, Baltimore Sun or something, you'll see political cartoons. Now, have you ever noticed how a political cartoonist draws the faces of people? Um, oftentimes, you know, they'll make a cartoon, a, a, a politician is, is having wings or something like that, and, you, and he's trying to send a message. Now, if you were a person who dug up, you know, you were digging in Hartford County a thousand years from now, and you dug up a copy of the Baltimore Sun, <laughs> God save you, 
and you saw that this was a representation of Harford culture in 1990s. And you, you said, oh, gee, look at this picture. And you saw this cartoon, and uh, you look at the funny pages, say, that other cartoons and those art forms look real. And then you go to this political cartoon, you say, geez, they believe the guy had wings. You mean a, a president had wings? Was the artist crazy? No. It would be a total misinterpretation of that political caricature, right? What is the cartoonist trying to do when he does that? He's trying to give you a message about the person's character. That's what that is. Nobody in Egypt believed the Pharaoh had a head of a falcon. What that is giving us, though, however, that is a message. That is an artistic rendition of the forces, character, and place of Pharaoh. The falcon... Remember, idolatry always makes God into an image of the creation. The falcon had a certain nature to him. Aggressive, free, uh, able to fly, uh, un, you know, not two-dimensional existence, but three-dimensional existence. Um, they were fascinated here. Notice the serpent and the sun. Um, remember Yul Brunner in the film? It always has the serpent here on his headgear. These were three depictions of the forces of nature. And by drawing those like that, what they were saying is that Pharaoh himself is part of this great system of forces in nature. So he was seen as more than a man. He was seen as an integration point for society and for meaning. All of Egyptian society was integrated and sort of centered on the idea that Pharaoh was the mediator between heaven and earth. If you look at the one of those art forms there, that first one, A, which was a comb, lady's comb, found in an Egyptian tomb. And that has the the um, the, the uh, falcon god shows up three three ways there. Shows up here, way in the top, in a boat going across the sky. And there again, it's sort of like the sun and the falcon are together because of this imagery, this image they had of the falcon. Then you have these wings. Again, the appearance of this falcon god who is now the sky. And then we have the falcon sitting here on top of this box. And these uh, are translated, these marks here are translated to be the name of a pharaoh. So here we have the pharaoh, we have the sky, we have the sun, all united as one integrated system. Notice the sign for life. This, you know, New Age people like this in their jewelry, but actually that was a sign of eternal life to the Egyptian art form. And it's pharaoh that gives life. Then you'll notice on the side of this comb, there are these two scepters. And these are the scepters that mean ordered, welfare, peaceful society. So the message on this lady's comb is that she... It's a, it's a religious, political cartoon depicting Egyptian beliefs about society. That all of nature is to be integrated. We obtain our peace and our welfare by having a smoothly running society with no changes in it, that Pharaoh is the absolute control. And this is why, if you look on page 45 of the notes down at the bottom, I quote again Frankfurt, looking at another art form, but if you look at that quote, Pharaoh was the fountainhead of all authority, all power and all wealth. The famous saying of Louis XIV, Latasse Moi, was levity and presumption when it was uttered, but could have been offered by Pharaoh as a statement of fact in which his subjects concurred. It would have summed up adequately Egyptian political philosophy. Pharaoh was the state. And you know, in Egyptian language, there's no word for state. There's only a word for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the state. If Pharaoh dies and something happens to Pharaoh, it ruptures the fabric of society. Egyptians fear chaos. They mustn't have chaos. 
The answer to chaos is a strong authoritative government centered in Pharaoh. Probably, by the way, this idea got started in Joseph's day when what did the Pharaoh do in Joseph's day? He saved the world. And what did he also do? He controlled all the land. After the, Pharaoh, after the famine, the Pharaoh became God walking on earth because he controlled all the property. There was no freedom left. All right, just a few other things on the, some of these artwork that maybe shows us a little bit more, caref- more uh, thoroughly. Here's that pillar. And the thing to think about on that pillar is if you look carefully, you look at first glance, when you look at this art, you think there's a straight line running down there. But look with your eye very carefully at how the artist stopped the line here, he stopped the line there, and he stopped the line here, and he stopped the line there. Those lines don't connect. You look at them again. They're not straight lines. They are the same thing that this woman had on her comb. They are those scepters. And those scepters are the sign of order and peace and welfare. Do you notice the symbol up at the top? The sun. And down at the bottom, there's, uh, well, it's the last hieroglyph, there's a serpent there. But all those, those hieroglyphs from top to bottom depict the name of the Pharaoh. Now, if you think about that, I have to watch my negatives here because they get hot in the overhead projector. Um, but you know what that's, that pillar is saying? That Pharaoh is the mediator between heaven and earth. See, he, he formed a very powerful role in their religion and, and political belief. And I give you all this background so when you read the book of Exodus, you get a better feel for what's happening here. It's not just two guys knocking it together, Moses and Pharaoh. It's a lot more than that. It's two completely different political philosophic and religious beliefs that are in collision at the Exodus. Now, this is the other art form that you see in the notes. And what's significant here was that Pharaoh appears with two gods. And Egyptian artists didn't use perspective in their drawing. And they had this kind of two-dimensional shape. So, in Egyptian art, the, the size of the figure isn't the closeness of him to you. The size of the figure in Egyptian art is the importance of the figure. So by drawing Pharaoh, and if you notice, the artist, if you very draw a line across the head of the god over to the head of this god, Pharaoh's head actually is higher. The artist actually drew Pharaoh taller than the gods. So here we have a statement that Pharaoh lives, walks, breathes, in the realm of the gods. Deification. Total deification of the leader. Okay. Um, if we look at the middle paragraph on page 45, I want to comment on the role of the sun and the serpent, this first one that we had, we looked at. Drawing C, which is another one, that's the one I didn't have here tonight, but it does the same thing as this drawing, the serpent and the sun. Drawing C shows how closely the sun and serpent appear in Egyptian art. Apparently, to the Egyptian mind, the sun and snake shared certain characteristics. Both move without normal means of propulsion. The sun illuminates the physical world, and if pieces of primitive revelation were remembered in distorted form, the snake illuminated the spiritual world. By the way, real spooky passage. You remember years ago, some of the older people remember, Jean Dixon. She was a lady that wrote all these books on prophecy. And I forgot what her bestseller was, but her first bestseller, she had them all on the newsstands and everywhere you go in a supermarket, you saw Jean Dixon's, whatever this book was. And you look at the first chapter, and she's trying to tell you how she got started and seeing her visions. She said, I had a dream one night. And a serpent appeared to me in this dream. And he looked at me with his two eyes. And I looked into, behold, his eyes, and they were full of wisdom. Now, look, I mean, lady, did you ever read Genesis? So, here we have the, the, the same serpent symbol associated with wisdom and illumination. 
So what you've got here probably in these things like this in the art form is a memory of Genesis that has got already perverted and convoluted in their thinking. Instead of being afraid of the serpent, they remember that the serpent was the one who promised the knowledge of good and evil. So now they really turned on to serpents. Okay. Um, I want to conclude by um, taking you over to the first chapter of Exodus tonight and uh, show you just a bit how it begins and urge you, if you haven't ever done this before, is to read this book rapidly. If you have a problem with um, time on it, I would say that... Uh, uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are the critical ones as far as the Exodus itself is concerned. But if you really get gung-ho about things, the hot stuff starts in chapter 7. That's when the confrontation sets up between Moses and Pharaoh. So you might want to start chapter 7 and read through chapter 15. But if you don't have time, at least try to read through uh, from chapter um, 12 through 15. Why do you think... That is just a closing question. When you start the book of Exodus, it starts this way. Doesn't this remind you of something in the New Testament? Why do you suppose these genealogies come dropped into the passage? Think about what we've said. What is the grand scheme of the Abrahamic covenant? Land, seed, and worldwide blessing. And what does a covenant do? It specifies behavior. And what does history do? It reports the behavior. The genealogies report the adventures of the seed of Abraham. Therefore, you find these genealogies. And you'll notice verse 1 starts, these are the names of the sons of who? The sons of Israel. And so it's the story of their lives and it's, it sets you up for the Exodus. It, whatever happens in the Exodus, ultimately is a result of the, the life of what went on with the seed. The destiny of the seed is examined in the book of Exodus. All right, sum up. Tonight we have looked and we've set up now our thinking for analyzing this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not a confrontation merely of two men. It's a confrontation of two gods, two belief systems, two mighty ideas that one or the other will triumph, but they both can't. These ideas will remain in tension forever. They are at war with one another. There can be no peace between the belief of the Pharaoh and the belief of Moses. Both are faith positions, but one must win. And that's the story of the Exodus. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in history. We thank you for your encouragement that as we examine these macroscopic events, that we're looking at the large picture of the vast motions of your power in history. And we're thankful that we have in this book the outline of history. And we know where history is going because ultimately it is your story. And we give thanks now in Christ's name. Amen. If you have any questions, I'll be here for a few minutes, but I know most of you want to get home. No more precipitation, but still a lot of ice out there, so.